Hi everyone, welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good, a senior writer at Wired, and I'm joined remotely by my co-host, Wired senior editor, Michael Calori. Hey, Mike. Hello, hello. Nice to hear from you again. Nice to see you over Zoom, although we can't be in person in studio. Good to see you too. And we are joined this week by Wired senior writer, Andy Greenberg, who's also the author of Sandworm, a new era of cyber war in the hunt for the Kremlin's most dangerous hackers. Andy, thanks for joining us. Hi, guys. Nice to see you remotely. Andy, I just learned that it's been a really long time since we've had you on the Wired podcast, possibly six years or so, possibly. We're, we were trying to figure out when, but I'm happy to say that nothing has changed since then. There's no news. The world is not dramatically different since the last time you were on the Gadget Lab podcast. So we'll just call this a wrap. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, go out and drink some coffee. We've actually brought Andy on this week to talk about a really compelling story he wrote that published this week on Wired.com. It's the most popular story on our website right now, and for good reason. It's called The Confessions of Marcus Hutchins, the Hacker Who Saved the Internet, and it's also Wired's June cover story. So back in 2017, Hutchins put a stop to a malware called WannaCry, which some of you might remember. At the time, it was the worst cyber attack in history, but Marcus found a way to neutralize it. Effectively, he found the kill switch. Then, just three months later, the FBI arrested him, accusing him of creating a different type of malware years earlier. Andy, you take us through Marcus's remarkable life, and he's still relatively young, so he's done a lot in a short period of time. You go over some of the mistakes he made and the person he has become. What made Marcus want to tell his story? Well, uh, Marcus is a really complicated guy, and the, you know he. And the story is is really complex. I think everyone had um, everyone in the cybersecurity community kind of had their, their own version of this story in their heads. They saw Marcus as this hero who in May of 2017 had stopped WannaCry, which was this $8 billion cyber attack. Still the second worst cyber attack in history. Other people saw him as this, this villain, this imposter, a cyber criminal, um, a kind of wolf in sheep's clothing or something. And, and so I think, you know, in part, Marcus wanted to replace all of those stories that people had in their heads about him with the, the, the full kind of definitive warts and all story. Um, it, it took years of me asking um, for him to agree to finally tell that story. Um, it, we had to wait essentially for his entire case to be adjudicated, for him to, to go through indictments and arraignment and um, pleading guilty and then being sentenced. Uh, I don't want to spoil the end of the story, but but he, uh, essentially for his case to be over, for him to talk about all of it. I, I think another big motivation here was that we called this story the Confessions of Marcus Hutchins, and that is definitely in part what it was. I mean, Marcus is a young guy who has been through a lot and has done a lot of bad things as well as you know the good things that made him this kind of hero uh, to many. And he, he talked about wanting to, to actually get that stuff out in public. He actually wanted to confess all of this in the middle of his case and his friends and lawyers uh, persuaded him not to because of course that would, that would be a disaster. That would have probably resulted in, in him going to prison. But he, you know, he, when, when Marcus was arrested uh, in August of 2017, he was taken up as this kind of cause celeb, this like uh, 
martyred hacker hero who had saved the internet from this cyber attack and then had been treated by the FBI as a villain and nobody understood why and a lot of people thought that it was a misunderstanding or uh, or at the very least that, that he was innocent of whatever crimes he was being accused of and he was going to be railroaded by the US justice system the same way that you know Chelsea Manning was and Aaron Swartz was so he became this kind of you know this person that people rallied to um, as this misunderstood innocent hero. And he felt really guilty about the fact that he was not innocent. He had done the things he was accused of, but he couldn't say that. So this finally is, is Marcus telling the whole story of all of those things that he did, the good things and the bad things. And he was very you know, eager to tell that story when the time was right. And, you know, to be clear, when he was picked up by uh, the feds uh, and arrested, it wasn't necessarily because of his involvement with WannaCry. It was because of his involvement with a previous hacking project from, from years earlier. Can you tell us a bit about that? That's right. So the, the real part of the story that had never been told before is that cyber criminal history. Uh, and Marcus, you know, was a uh, kind of hacking prodigy and um, built his own computer at the age of 13, then was like writing malware by the age of 14, Had, had was um, operating botnets, like collections of hacked computers, thousands of computers around the world by the age of 15, and ghostwriting uh, professional cyber criminals malware as a teenager in his parents' home in England. Um, so the ultimately what he was charged with was the the creation and the maintenance of these two pieces of malware called UPass Kit and Kronos is the big one. That was the the one that people really um, the, the, like. The kind of cardinal sin of his whole story is that he built this banking trojan called Kronos that really did get around the world and at least infected you know probably hundreds or some thousands of computers and was no doubt used to steal people's um, savings. Uh, but the story that you know that I wanted to tell, that Marcus wanted to tell too, is about how he was kind of slowly seduced into that criminal world and uh, step by step in this kind of I don't know amoral Lord of the Flies way, just kind of took one step after another into the, into immorality, and before he knew it, was kind of doing things that he knew uh, were wrong and. Uh, very conflicted about it in some cases. And, and part of the story is that he was kind of pulled in by this Lothario figure, Vinny, who is this still unindicted co-conspirator. The, the feds, as far as I know, are still looking for Vinny, who was sort of Marcus's um, partner or boss and uh, the one who was doing the actual selling of Kronos on black markets on the web. Um, Vinny kind of reeled Marcus in and slowly persuaded him step by step and and, and you know, maybe even kind of pressured him or tricked him ultimately into building some elements of Kronos uh, that made it this powerful banking Trojan. So that's the, that's, that is the first half of the story. It's this kind of very sad descent into, I don't know, the darkest parts of the web. You teed up my next question perfectly because I was wondering whether to this day anyone really knows who Vinny is. And not just Vinny, but also Randy, who was another person on the internet who Marcus connected with and ended up sharing personal information with. Yeah, I don't know the identities of either of those people, Vinny or Randy. And Vinny um, is the real mystery here. Vinny, as I was saying, is was Marcus's kind of partner um, who um, 
was doing a, kind of the, the real hardened criminal in this story and the one who kind of represents the worst kind of darkest period of Marcus's life as a cyber criminal teenager. Um, it seems like, well, Marcus tells me that he doesn't know Vinny's identity uh, either. And even it seems like the FBI doesn't know who Vinny is. They Part of the reason that they arrested and indicted Marcus, it seems, was that they were trying to flip him and get him to uh, act as an uh a cooperating witness and tell them what he knew about Vinny, which was not that much, it turned out. Now, the other person you you, you mentioned is Randy, who's this other interesting character who um, Marcus saw as this kind of, he was a friend of Marcus's and he Marcus saw him as a kind of Robin Hood figure who was engaged, you know, he was involved in cybercrime too, but he was using uh, his profits for uh, kind of philanthropic things like coding education for kids and they would even like video chat. Marcus did know, does know Randy's real identity, would not tell it to me. Um, and ultimately, it was Randy who informed on Marcus and gave the FBI the evidence that they needed to to arrest and indict him and ultimately convict him, in fact. Um, so, you know, the FBI absolutely knows who Randy is. He is their informant, uh, but I don't. And I guess I, you know, I... I'm certainly not interested in a story like this and trying to out an FBI informant and get him potentially killed by all the people that he's informed on. So it wasn't a question that I that I pressed too hard on. Um, you know, as um, Marcus was uh, moving from being a teenager into being an adult, uh, he was uh, sort of, as you mentioned, going through all of these uh, moral and ethical conflicts about the work that he was doing. So he eventually um, went legit and very quickly found work as a security researcher, uh, primarily tracing botnets, basically mapping their activity around the world. Um, can you tell us about uh, what that work is and why it's useful to security researchers? Well, botnets are these collections of sometimes hundreds of thousands or millions of computers infected with malware that are being controlled by some hacker somewhere and they're used to you know, launch denial of service attacks where all the computers send junk traffic at one target at the same time to knock it offline. Or they can just kind of be harvested for their own contents. All of these hacked machines can have their, for instance, their banking, banking information stolen. So it's really important. Um, there are lots of companies that try to act as a kind of um, alert system to tell you if if your company, if you are part of a botnet, you you want to know. Um, uh, you you don't want to have your computer being used in these kinds of cyber attacks, and you don't want to have your data stolen. Um, but uh, what Marcus was particularly talented at, it turned out, was uh, getting a hold of the malware that that composes botnets that that is installed on a computer to sort of enslave it in one of these zombie botnets and. Uh, then reverse engineering that malware to figure out how the computers in a botnet spoke to each other, like with the, the kind of protocol that they communicated with. And then he could basically mimic that protocol on his own computer. Uh, he would kind of like recreate the, the communications element of the, of the malware. And that allowed him to kind of uh, infiltrate the botnet's communications network. A lot of these botnets... In, some of them communicate to like one server that is their command and control server. And that that's what tells all the computers in the botnet what to do. But a lot of them 
communicate to each other in this peer-to-peer system that makes the botnet a lot harder to take down for law enforcement, for instance. But that also means that if you have one node in that botnet, you can listen in to all the commands that they're receiving and, and even speak to other bots. So what Marcus was doing uh, eventually uh, for one botnet after another was infiltrating them, becoming a part of them, and then listening in. And that, that would allow him to identify sometimes all the other computers that were infected and part of that botnet, or in some cases to intercept the commands that were being sent to all those bots and and tell in real time who was being hit with cyber attacks, for instance. And all of this is really helpful kind of intelligence for people who are both in the botnet or the victim of the attacks. And that got him a, you know, a, a very uh, well-paid and prestigious job at this company, Cryptos Logic, where he was kind of a rising star. And um, that was kind of the next phase of his life after he broke free of this cyber criminal past. He became this kind of botnet whisperer. Andy, this story is really masterfully told. It's got an amazing narrative arc. You see the rise of this young star hacker and then his past catch up with him. The ending is really great. I highly recommend everyone go to Wired.com or pick up the June issue if you can and check it out because it's that good. I had one more question for you. During the effort by Marcus and his legal team to clear his name at a time when they accepted a plea bargain, Marcus tweeted something that suggested that you don't have to dabble in the dark side of the cyber community in order to be a white hat. Do you think that's true in the hacking community? Yeah, well, the, the tweet that you're referring to, you know, I, I actually think it's like, uh, um, I fought with my editors about whether it should be in the story because it's it complicates the story in a way. Like, it's easy to tell this story that, um, oh, isn't this interesting? This kid who has this cyber criminal background, that's what made him so knowledgeable. And that's how he was able to do this incredible work to stop all of these or to track all of these botnets and then ultimately in the kind of climax of his you know heroics he's that allowed that work allowed him to stop WannaCry too and kind of save the whole internet stop this eight billion dollar cyber attack it's kind of a, a, a tidy convenient story to tell like um, only because he had done these bad things was he ultimately able to do this good thing and uh, but the story you know this is a complicated story and that is not Marcus doesn't believe that that's true. And I think it's really to his credit. He tweeted out, just as he was as he was pleading guilty, as you were saying, that no, you don't need to take this path to do great things in cybersecurity, that you can just stick to the good side and that you should. So I, to me, it's, it's, it's I, I don't know, it was uh, important to me to avoid that kind of easy story to tell, and to Marcus too, and to tell like a, a very real and complex story of about the fact that people can just do very bad things and then do very good things and people change and are, you know, complex and that there is a big spectrum of morality. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Andy's going to join us again to talk about contact tracing. Welcome back. Andy, while we have you on the show this week, we wanted to ask you about contact tracing, which is one of the efforts being used to minimize the spread of the coronavirus. Contact tracing is something that you and some of our other colleagues at Wired have written about. And a few weeks ago, there seemed to be some encouraging news that Apple and Google were actually working together to introduce software kits that could help 
make contact tracing apps a thing here in the United States. But so far, it doesn't seem as though contact tracing is being received in the same way here in the U.S. as it is in other countries. And maybe it won't gain traction in the same way. What's the latest on contact tracing? Well, Apple and Google have now actually released uh, not just a kind of schematic for what they're offering, which is this actually very conservative, very privacy-preserving Bluetooth-based approach to, they wouldn't even call it contact tracing. They call it exposure notification because they don't want to give any sense that you can, that you can trace someone's movements or that, or that um, government contact tracers who are people will be able to use this. In fact, all of it is just to inform individuals on their phone if they've been exposed. So that's why it's called exposure notification. Um, but the latest is that they have now also not just released the schematic for this, but the actual um, code. And there's a beta of the API that developers can start to look at to build their own apps. Um, and, you know, I personally think that, I don't know, I don't, I'm not usually like a big cheerleader for um, tech companies, just kind of like in general, but I I do believe that Apple and Google's approach is smart here. The system that they're offering in their operating systems in Android and iOS to the people who will actually build these apps, the government agencies who will build the exposure notification apps, uh, does not actually follow people's locations. And it doesn't really collect anything from the vast majority of people's phones. Uh, only people who are diagnosed as COVID-19 positive can choose to alert other people that they've come into contact with, but in a way that if it's done right, if it's implemented correctly, actually no no authority will ever be aware of. Only the people who came into contact with them will receive this notification. So it's a super, it's kind of like the minimalist's approach to this, which I think is, is smart because you need something like 70% of a country's population for this to work. So, you know, every story that I've written about this has has been flooded with comments on Twitter about how, you know, I'm not going to buy into this Apple, Google, Panopticon. There is so much skepticism, privacy skepticism about Silicon Valley. There, this is a massive uphill battle. Uh, and we need to be able to say to people, there is almost no privacy risk here, or there is minimal privacy risk, or there won't be anywhere close to the adoption necessary for this to be meaningful. So I, I'm I'm actually like a, a I feel like a I am a fan of Apple and Google's approach, and I hope that some countries actually adopt it. It seems like European countries in particular want to actually want more information than what Apple and Google are offering them. So there's a lot of a lot of conflict right now between countries like France and the UK. Actually, the UK, I think, now has come around to the Apple and Google protocol. But France has been fighting with Apple and Google because they want more information. They want to be able to learn more than what this Apple and Google system offers them. They want to actually have a centralized database of who's coming into contact with whom, which Apple and Google don't want to give them, essentially. So this is the, the fight. And, and now we're going to have to see what happens in the US. It seems like, as with most things related to COVID-19, the federal government is doing nothing and leaving it to the states to figure this out. So it's going to be this piecemeal thing where we have to look at every state or regional approach and see how they implement this system or some other system, whether they're trying to just like collect people's location data, which can be very dangerous, or whether they're, they're taking this you know, very privacy-preserving approach instead. 
You know, I think that that friction is really interesting. Uh, the, the one that you speak of where there are a lot of people who are unwilling to turn over the kinds of information that these apps collect. When in reality, the types of information that these apps collect is are pretty benign uh, and there's not really a lot of identifying information that is being transmitted. Um, in contrast, of course, every day when you walk around with a cell phone or when you spend time on the internet, you're being tracked by ad tech companies, which is which are the, the systems that hoover up all of the uh, information that they can use to sell you targeted advertising. So, you know, how do we communicate that to people that like, you know, if you're if you're unwilling to participate in a large scale data collection project for the good of public health, you should also know that you're already participating in a large scale data collection system for like the commercial gain of advertising companies. Well, that's that is such a complicated message to give to people like, um, listen, buy into this Google and Apple system because this one is actually fairly private. And let's uh, let's set aside the fact that Google in particular is tracking you in ways that are vastly more centralized and invasive all the time, as well as, of course, like your carriers your, in particular, your phone carriers are, I would say, in some ways, even more dangerous. They, they have all of the cell tower data about where you are at all times. You probably have location services turned on and like, you know, um, there are features of Google Maps that people opt into that follow them everywhere they go constantly. I mean, uh, and you know, as you were saying, Mike, there's there are ad tech companies that are following your movements inside of stores and things. So at some point, when someone is diagnosed as COVID nineteen positive, they have to tell the server that so that everybody they've been in, in contact with can be notified. Um, now that should be done anonymously. But if the app maker implements this incorrectly, they might tie that to the person's IP address and be able to learn who is sick. And that could be bad. But I guess that many people, many governments, in fact, w already have databases of everyone who is sick and they want to have that information. So um, this is this, you know, the the risks are not negligible. And they are particularly sensitive in some ways because they're about health. They're about a very serious disease. But at the same time, as you were saying, Mike, like we all open our private lives, our digital lives to these companies in so many other ways that people just neglect to think about all the time. So this is a case where the trade-offs are, are you know, pretty real. Like you could actually help in some maybe marginal, but maybe real way to allow people to get back to normal life by installing this app. Andy, what do we think will happen next with contact tracing apps in the US? I think we're going to we're going to see probably a state by state rollout, if anything. I mean, it could be that that the US just decides not to even try this, which I think would be a shame. But there's been so much skepticism in the media, which I think often doesn't understand how these things work and overplays the privacy risks or, um, or you know, simply the kind of tech lash inherent privacy skepticism uh, of the people who would use these apps could simply kill it here in the US. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see it at all. But if we do, I think it'll be on a state by state basis. And some of the apps will use Google and Apple's system. Uh, some will probably use their own like home rolled janky problematic <laughs> systems and i think that we're gonna have to kind of watch them one by one to see who is doing this right and 
and who is doing it wrong. And the ones that do it wrong, it could be very dangerous. I wrote a story just this past week about India, where they have implemented, they've built their own system. They've made it mandatory for millions and millions of people. 90 million people have installed their contact tracing app. And then it turns out that you can essentially, at least in some less densely populated areas, identify sick people just as a, not as the government, but any any hacker can reverse engineer the app and send requests to the server and figure out where sick people are down to, you know, a few meters perhaps. So the pitfalls here are real if you do this wrong. Thank you for that update. We're going to take one more quick break. And when we come back, we're going to do recommendations and Andy is going to join us. All right, Andy, what's your recommendation this week? Well, it's just not like a this week um, recommendation particularly, except that I guess it sort of is it's relevant in some ways to the Marcus Hutchins story. Uh, I loved Evan Ratliff's book, The Masterminds, which published, I don't know, when was that? Last year at this point? Um, Evan Ratliff is a former Wired writer. And the story he tells is about uh, this young crypto geek kid, Paul LaRue, who just begins to dabble in crime, kind of cybercrime. He builds some encryption tools, and but then he eventually kind of leaves behind these nerdy crimes and just takes one step after another into evil and becomes this uh, global criminal mastermind kingpin who is involved in you know everything from uh, North Korean methamphetamine production to trying to stage a coup in Somalia. I mean, the, the story is just so amazing. And so the Marcus Hutchins story that I was trying to tell in some ways is about this kid similarly who just descends into um, online immorality, but then some kind of miraculously rescues himself and rehabilitates and becomes this hero. Uh, the mastermind to me is this I mean, in some ways, even more interesting story of what happens when that kid just goes deeper and deeper and deeper to a degree of of uh, just absolute deplorable behavior that is just, it's, it's hard to even fathom. And it's just an epic book. I think Evan spent five years writing it, and it's a great read. Mike, what's your recommendation? Uh, well, I mean... We should also note that Andy wrote a book called uh, Sandworm last year, which is excellent. You should also read that one after you finish Evan's book. Very kind of you, Mike. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so my recommendation for this week is, uh, is a profile of Val Kilmer that ran in the New York Times Magazine last week. It's written by Taffy Broadiser Ackner. And if you're familiar with her work, then you know that it's very in-depth and beautifully written uh, and a lot of fun. It's a crazy journey. Val Kilmer, of course, the matinee idol of the 80s and 90s. He was in Top Gun. He played Jim Morrison in The Doors. He played Doc Holliday in the film Tombstone. Uh, and then, you know, about uh, six or seven years ago, he just kind of disappeared. So what happened to Val Kilmer? Uh, she meets with him and hangs out with him and tells you exactly what happened to him. Uh, it also traces his career. Uh, it's just a fantastic profile. Um, so there's two ways to get into it. One is you can read it in the New York Times magazine and, you know, on the New York Times website. But I would also recommend that you listen to it. 
so last year at some point, um, the New York Times bought a company called Autumn, A-U-D-M, which does uh, spoken editions of long stories on the internet. Uh, they do some stories for Wired, um, and they do a lot of the New York Times long form stuff. And you can listen to it in their app, but also the New York Times has been publishing its long form like weekly reads on the daily podcast feed so if you subscribe to the daily podcast then you probably saw this pop up last sunday i think the episode was titled uh ice man in winter of course referencing val kilmer's um character name from top gun so if you can listen to it it's really extra special but you can also just read it so that's my recommendation what happened to val kilmer by taffy broadiser ackner I feel like Taffy could write a profile of a box of crackers and I would read it. <laughs> she's just, she's really so talented, incredibly talented. And I will say, I know it is against her ethics. I know it is against all of our ethics to accept any gifts that are given to us from sources, but I hope she does get to keep the painting for a while. It seemed, seemed meaningful to her, which you will understand if you go read this profile. Uh, true. Uh, Lauren, what's your recommendation? My recommendation this week is Planet Money from NPR. It's a podcast. It's not a new podcast. It's been around for a while, but I think it's a, they're doing a particularly good job during this time of economic uncertainty. The most recent episode was about the restaurant from the future and the ways in which the industry is rethinking restaurants. There was a really good episode back on May 1st. Um, called About That Hazard Pay, where they spent the morning at a grocery store and talked to an essential worker and um, heard directly from that worker and talked about, I mean, basically this this grocery store worker um, would make more money if she were laid off at this point and could collect unemployment because of the additional unemployment benefits that are being given to workers. But she kind of feels like it's her duty to continue to work at this grocery store and she's putting herself at risk every day by doing so. It was a really compelling episode. There are episodes about buybacks and bailouts, um, episodes about the price of a barrel of oil in the United States and what's going on there. It's just very good. They do a fantastic job. They're not super long episodes. They're usually somewhere between 15 and 20 minutes. So I highly recommend that you give Planet Money a listen. Solid. All right. That's our show for this week. Thanks very much to Andy Greenberg for joining us. Thank you guys for having me on. It was fun. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. This show is produced by Boone Ashworth. Our executive producer is Alex Kappelman. We'll be back next week. And until then, be well. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take Podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life, or why China's targeting the US dollar, and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.